Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm here to talk to you about the support classes and a lot of interesting action from the San Marino Grand Prix at Misano. Uh, a few days have settled after the uh, the event, quite a few events uh, worth talking about. And I'm glad to say that I'm not alone. Mr. David Emin of motormatters.com is here with me on today's show. Hello, David. Hello, Neil. Yeah, talking on your own is um, uh, quite complicated. I did that uh, last night and the night before for our Paddock Pass podcast Patreon supporters, bringing them up to speed on the events of the MotoGP test uh, at Misano, the two-day test. Um, uh, but it is, uh, it's quite odd talking to yourself. And uh, I was just glad that no one could see me. Yeah, there was a bit of Mickey taking in our main show earlier this week with uh, usual guests, Steve English and Adam Wheeler. And I'm starting to think, Dave, that we might have gone a bit too far with some of our some of our rib tickling and piss taking uh, because we're alone today. Yes, indeed. Yeah, apparently, uh, apparently so. But it's, uh, the, the only benefit is there's only one person to talk uh, at, at great length about tiramisu. So um, there is that. <laughs> exactly yes um okay so dave um let's get into to Mizano, i guess because we didn't just have model two and model three like always we also had the really interesting model e finale and well let's uh let's kick off with with that i think because uh that was possibly the uh the race um on sunday that had the uh the biggest fallout the the kind of most dramatic climax because there was a championship on the line it wasn't just a championship on the line but we also had the two guys vying for the championship on track together fighting towards the end of the race um and one of them ended up knocking the other off there was a whole lot of controversy and uh well we saw eventually that jordi torres won the world cup for the second straight year despite coming home 13th place i mean Tell me about it. It was uh, it was pretty pretty wild, pretty crazy. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, like it was. A, it was a, absolutely a fantastic race. The, the thing was, in a way, it built up to that finale in the same way that we saw in Moto Two and that we saw in Moto GP, where there was someone got away uh, in, in the lead and then someone else ch- uh, chased them down. In this case, it was Jordi uh, Torres getting away in the, from the lead and you know Dominic uh, Egerter had one choice one opportunity to win he had to finish in front of Jordi Torres he needed some help from other riders as well um, but you know he had to get in front of Torres and Torres got away uh, Egerter rode brilliantly to actually hunt him down and then the last what two or three I think with about three to go by the end of the uh, or by the sort of end of three to go start of two to go uh, he caught um, Torres, and they—I mean—they went at it just hammer and tongs um, for the penultimate lap, and then the last lap, they um, uh, uh, Torres actually got a really good start to that first uh, first lap. Got a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a gap. Um, Egerter let Torres get away, and then he chased him down into the final corner and. Or well, not the final corner, you know, turn 14, 15, 16, to go into turn 14. Um, he had one chance to try to do something. Uh, he took that chance. Uh, he There was absolutely no way he was actually going to make it. Um, dived up the inside of, uh, of Torres, got the bike sideways, um, and sort of ended up sort of slamming into Torres and knocking Torres off the bike. Uh, and it took a little while before he was handed a thirty-eight. Uh, what was that? A thirty-eight second penalty for ignoring a um, a, a ride through, even though you know the ride through was basically on the last lap. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, 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 in the end, I think it was the right decision. Um, but it, I mean, it was it was a it was a fantastic race to watch. It was just those those last couple of laps. You could also really see that they're having to. You could really see the weight of the bikes, the way that they were having to fight because you can break up the inside of someone, but it takes so much physical force that you're always going to leave the door open again. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's worth saying that uh, Torres is. Oh, sorry, Agador's penalty, thirty-eight seconds, was basically the equivalent of a ride-through. So that was the penalty they felt. Race direction and the stewards felt uh, fitted the uh, fitted the misdemeanor. I mean, I'm going to have to ask you, Dave, for your thoughts and your opinion on that final lap. Because speaking to a couple of people, um, for example, I saw um, your Dutch Eurosport colleague Peter Baum coming out in favour of the penalty and saying that uh, it was the right thing to do. My com- my commentary 
colleague, Matt Dunn, was also saying that he felt it was the right thing that happened. But yet, um, you know, someone with a lot of experience, both racing and in the journalist game, Matt Oxley, was saying that he felt that it, it shouldn't have been a case, that it was a racing incident. And this is something that you have to deal with whenever two riders going for the championship find themselves on track right at the end of a championship. Um, where do you stand? I mean, I think, um, I mean, basically, Egeter has to go for that gap. He has to. It's as simple as that. There is a gap. Uh, it's the it's the, the the last couple of corners of the last lap of the last race of the championship. You have to go for the gap, but you have to make the gap. And if you don't make it, uh, and you make a mistake, and you knock someone off in the uh, uh, as a result, it was um, then yeah, you deserve to you you deserve some kind of a punishment. I mean, like I, I have no idea whether. Um, a 38 second ride through penalty is the correct uh, penalty or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you either make the, cur- you know, you have to make it, you have to try, uh, but you have to make it. And if you don't make it, then, uh, or if you don't make it and you knock someone else off in the uh, sort of, uh, in, in the passing, then I think, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely deserves a penalty. So I think it was the right outcome for the championship. Um, it, it sort of spoilt the, spoils it at the end because there was so much about, uh, uh, there was so much sort of debate about it. It sort of took away a little bit from the race, but the, the drama was fantastic. The drama was just what Moto E needed as well. Um, and it took away from the, from the previous two laps, which were absolutely just fantastic. They were really, really good. I mean, I don't know. I think they passed each other maybe five, six times in about, in the space of two laps. It was, uh, it was just cracking stuff. Yeah, great stuff. Exactly what you want to see in a, a championship duel right the way until the end. Um, I mean, I am still, I've watched it back about four or five times now, and I'm still not exactly sure. Um, part of me thinks that, as you said, Egger has to go for it. But then at the same time, I think if Torres had lost the championship because of that, it would have been it would have been too much and would have been unfair because when you look at the, if you slow the, the overtaker moved on, yes, it was aggressive, but Egeter was going right to the edge of the track. Plus, he was a little out of control whenever he touched Torres. Um, and it all happened so quickly that, you know, I heard a few people say that Torres should have pulled up and basically just let him go by underneath. But um, when Egeter did go by, his rear was out of, out of line and that actually clipped his front tyre. Uh, which caused him to fall over. So it, technically, Egerto was out of control. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could the, the fact that he's uh, you know the, the rear is all over the place, and maybe he doesn't even make that corner if if Torres just sort of hits the brakes and lets him go by. Um, one of the reasons he, he stays off is because his uh, you know his rear is going sideways and sort of slams into Torres, uh, which br- brings it back into line, which is using another rider as a berm. Though I don't think uh, Egerto actually intended to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he went for it. Um, he, but he couldn't manage it. And that was, the, 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 that's sort of the, the, the long and the short of it. Uh, like I say, if you can get past, then there's, the, you know, it's, it's no harm, no foul. Um, but the fact that he knocks Torres off, I think that, that is the decisive factor, you know. What's odd is that Torres is even battling because he doesn't need to. You know, he's got the championship in the bag. He can just let Egerta go past. Uh, it might even have been smart to let Egerta get in, uh, just get in in front of him and then try to get him in the last corner. Um, but I think you know this is rider pride and ambition, uh, which which makes them want to makes them want to win. And also, I think he, if I remember correctly, he hadn't actually won a race this season, had he? Uh, prior prior to the previous day. So, um, and that was in somewhat fortuitous circumstances. I mean, the thing with Moto E this weekend was we had two great races. The first race was also a cracker because we had um, Egator Torres and Eric Granado fighting at the front. And at that point, Granado was right in the title hunt. If he finished second on Saturday, he would have been one point, I think, behind the championship lead going into the final race. He tried to pass Egator at the final turn off the final lap, crashed out. And uh, Egger had to pick up and that allowed Torres to get through. And it was just interesting because Torres spent all year basically saying, I think I need to be more aggressive because he was picking up thirds, fourths, fifths, you know, lots of strong point scoring positions. And that is essentially the tactic that won him the championship last year. Um, and as you say, he didn't have to, he didn't have to go toe to toe with Tommy in that final lap. Um, but it just seemed to be one of those cases where 
the more Agadir had a go at him, almost the more fired up Torres became. And if you watch back the penultimate lap, they very, very nearly came together at turn 14, the previous lap. The same thing really could have happened that happened on the last lap, one lap before. Um, so you do wonder whether the red mist had come down ever so slightly um, on that occasion. But um, I mean, pretty thrilling drama. Um, and there's only a, a handful, I think, of, of sort of precedents in, in the history of Grand Prix racing, which which were something similar. Obviously, Caparossi and Arada, Argentina is the famous one. Yeah, but this was not this was not Caparossi and Harada. I mean, the Caparossi versus Harada is the most cynical move I think I've ever seen. It was um, more uh, attempted mar- murder than attempted overtaking. Um, you know, he didn't even bother trying to break. Uh, it just sort of slammed straight into the side of Harada. Um, and obviously, uh, I believe he lost his ride with Aprilia uh, over that. And at first, they, tr- they tried to take his championship award or, or they, they tried to um, disqualify Capirossi and Capirossi appealed and found that they couldn't. And, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, a debate backwards and forwards before, in the end, Capirossi was crowned champion. Um, I, I mean, you know, nowadays that would no, I mean, it would be a simple disqualification. There'd just be no question at all about it. Uh, it, 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 it was clearly extraordinarily dangerous, but, um, yeah, this wasn't this. This was just sort of, there's a gap. I can go for it. I think I'm, I'll make it, but I'm not a hundred to hundred, you know, a hundred percent sure. Uh, he went for it. He missed out. Um, made a mistake. It was it was too much. And I think again, this is just the side of the 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 the, the weight of the bikes makes it much more difficult, and it actually makes it quite spectacular to watch because you can't. Um, there's so much mass moving around um, that it's much. It's really hard to sort of slide back. You know, pull the bike back underneath again. You can't. Uh, it's much harder to to, to turn these bikes. Are, are really really tight once they start going they're much more difficult to uh, to, to change direction absolutely yeah and um not just spectacular but also quite scary i mean that's one of the, the fears that i have watching model e racing just the the possibility of one of those bikes striking someone else uh, is is pretty terrifying we saw that in the first race with um the man who was leading the championship at that point, Alessandro Zaccone, crashing at turn three and then getting run over um, by Hikari Kubo. And thankfully, Zaccone was all right, um, but a pretty pretty sad way for his championship to end. He had been leading basically from the first race right up until the final round. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it makes... Because the thing is, the speeds are so high that the fact that... Um, I mean, it, it's a horrific thought... Um, but the speeds are so high in all three of the Grand Prix classes that it really doesn't matter that the weight of the bike becomes, you know, a, a lot less relevant. Um, uh, if you're traveling 150 or 130 kilometers an hour on a, what is it, a 65, 70 kilo uh, Motor 3 bike, that's still a huge amount of energy and, it, and it's enough to uh, cause the human body, ex- you know, very, very serious damage. Uh, now, um, was it 260? I think, yeah, the 260 kilos, 130 kilometers an hour is a lot more energy. Um, but it's not going to make a material, a great deal of difference in terms of the amount of damage because the damage being done is already so extensive that, um, uh, you know, it's a bit like, uh, it's the difference of, um, uh, falling from, shall we say, 10, uh, uh, 10 floors up and 20 floors up. Um, uh, either way, it's probably going to hurt quite considerably. Yes, that's a fair point, Dave. Um, and just, I would like to, turn our chat a little bit to, to Moto E in general. Now, I know that I, I may be someone that has a bit of a vested interest or someone that pays closer attention just because you know, I have to commentate on, on the class. So um, maybe our dear listeners may think that, okay, I'm going to try and top it up, talk it up a little bit. But I'm interested to know, Dave, for your opinion uh, on the category because I, I got the sense that this year there was definitely less enthusiasm when it came in in 2019 it was this new class new technology we had some interesting rider selections like bradley smith was in there we had also the likes of sete gibernoy um, a couple of interesting guys came up from model two um, but this year i just felt that um there was a, a little less kind of enthusiasm for it for example british broadcaster bt sport weren't showing the races this year and i I uh, thought that that was something that was quite notable. Um, you know, you couldn't really watch the race in Britain unless you had a, a, a video pass on the MotoGP.com website. Um, 
from what you saw in 2021, where, where do you think the class is and, and where do you think it's going? Well, I mean, I think there, um, um, I think there is a more consistent level of riding now. I think, uh, before sort of, uh, especially in the further, the first year of MotoE, sort of the level of riders was all over the place. And there does seem to be now a group of riders of similar talent, um, who are sort of battling it out for, for, for the win. I mean, you know, how good is Domi Egerter? Well, look at his lead in the World Supersport Championship. Um, so, uh, like, it's not uh, Domi Egeter is not going to win a MotoGP title, um, but he's clearly a talented enough for a, a rider to win a championship. So him versus Torres, uh, that, that's that that is a those are good riders, good solid riders who are who are finding it out. The racing itself is fantastic. The bikes are. I mean, the bikes. One of the things which struck me is, uh, especially through Curvone, the uh, faster Turn Eleven. Um, just how fast the bikes look. I mean, they are still really, really fast, despite being sort of lardy old things. Um, and the, the racing is good because it's short, compact. It's a sprint race. Uh, it's quite difficult to get away. Uh, to get away. I haven't been able to see as much of MotoE as I would like to, just because uh, the weekend is so packed. There is so much racing, and and especially you know like like us, we're working. I mean, you watch it because you because you you have to. You're working. You're you're commentating on it. Um, it's much more difficult for you know journalists such as myself who the race is either it's either on between moto um, between the warm up and uh, moto three, or it's on uh, uh, after the MotoGP race when all the de- all the debriefs are on, and so. Uh, your focus is gone, but that's a real shame. I mean, that really is a shame. Um, I would like to watch it more. Uh, I occasionally go back and watch it on the uh, uh, on the video pass, just because it is it is good. I, I love the technology. I also love the. Uh, I realise I'm a bit of an outlier. I love the noise as well because it, it's got a proper um, uh, uh, Buck Rogers um, and uh, Battlestar Galactica style um, zoom to it as they uh, as they come by. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah it is proper sci-fi, and I'm uh, um, uh, I am a, a horribly nerdy old sci-fi uh, thing. As anyone who's seen my collection of um, uh, bags to keep my pens and bits and bobs in uh, can tell. Um, but yeah, it, I, I think it's great. I think it's also, it, it's good for the acceptance of electric bikes in the sport. In, in the, at some point, we're going to end up racing electric bikes. Now, whether that's in uh, 15 years or 40 years, we, would that that remains to be seen but you know i think at some point this is going to be the future of the sport and so it's good to actually have it on track uh and i i mean the fans uh like i don't think it's a fan favorite but whenever the the the, the whenever i've been at a track and the moto e-race has been on people seem to get enthusiastic about it you know people uh, p- people enjoy the spectacle even though it's uh even though it's very quiet i spoke to um nicola guber who is basically the the kind of the guy that Dorna has hired to run the Moto E World Cup, um, obviously ex-head of Michelin uh, Motorsport, two-wheel motorsport. Um, and Guber was saying that one of the big things that he feels has contributed to maybe this lack of enthusiasm this year has just been the fact that circuits have been closed for the last year and a half and fans haven't actually got to see the experience in the flesh. I think, like you said, the sound of it is kind of cool. If you see, if you saw that race on Sunday, for example, and you were watching on the outside of Cravoni or in the, the grandstand somewhere around the track, you would have come away thinking, wow, that was a great spectacle. Um, and I think we may have started to see um, a bit more enthusiasm with, for example, the race in Austria came after the MotoGP race and a lot of the fans in the main grandstand had stayed behind to watch it. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. But obviously next year, some changes are coming in. Um, they're going to try, they're ditching the e-poll qualifying format, which I think is is great because that was let's face it, a bit boring. Um, and they're basically replacing it with a kind of MotoGP-esque uh, Q1, Q2 session. And then we're going to have double races at every Moto E round through the series. So seven rounds, I think, we're going to have Moto E and there's going to be two races at each. So a 14-race championship rather than just uh, a seven-race championship. Um, and by doing that, it does seem that they're trying to attract maybe a higher caliber of rider because they need to make an attractive package for any riders you know financially because let's face it this is a job and you have to 
pay off the mortgage or you know put the kids through college um just like you have to do in many other jobs um and i think with expanding this this race format there is maybe a chance of attracting maybe the top riders you know from the um endurance world championship for example or world super sport or wherever it may be yeah i mean it, it certainly opens it up and i think for also 14 races is uh, I don't know if it's enough for a world championship, but it's much, it's a much more complete season. Um, you know, it, it feels like a proper comp, a, a proper championship. It feels like with fourteen races, you can afford to make a mistake and then come back again. Um, I mean, re- what we're really waiting for is for the races to get a little bit longer. Uh, that's just a matter of uh, battery technology, um, uh, and yeah, it, it certainly opens up an uh, an opportunity, and I'm I'm quite interested to see uh, see how it happens but i mean as for the racing i remember that i think the first time i saw a moto e race was at uh, the uh, at the saxon ring and in the saxon ring the media center is um at the beginning of the uh, of the straight and the only time that you really hear the moto gp bikes is when they come around the final corner and then up uh, towards the uh, towards the front straight and so we were watching the moto e race on the screens and it looked just looked like a you know, a proper motorbike race. And the only reason that you realised that it wasn't a motorbike race with engines is you couldn't hear any engines when they came over the front straight sort of thing. That was a reminder, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, right, this is the electric bikes, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it, it's a really good series. And 14 races is going to be a huge improvement. And I'm glad they got rid of V-Pole because uh, that, that old-fashioned Super Bowl, um I mean, I know I always get slaughtered for this on uh, on the Twitters whenever I say it, but that old-fashioned World Superbike Super Bowl format was horrendously tedious. I think works for the final five minutes when you've got basically a leaderboard more or less set and you've got three guys maybe vying to, to better that. But the first half hour of it is it's essentially nothing. Yeah, but it's like the Tour de France. I mean, when you watch the the, the um, time trials at the Tour de France, uh, basically they send off the uh, people at the bottom of the uh, format or the, at the bottom of the standings uh, first because they're the people that nobody really cares about. Um, someone will set uh, someone sort of mid-ish pack or the top fifty will set a really good time, and then uh, that gives everyone a something to chase. But the real tension is when you know the the, the championship leaders, the last ten, actually go off. Uh, that's when it starts to get more interesting. That's when you start to really uh, pay attention. Um, even broadcasters who pay a lot of money to cover the entire Tour de France don't actually film and uh, uh, and broadcast the first hundred or so riders. They only really focus on the top sort of 30, uh, 25 or 30 riders because that's where the action is. And as you say, that was the problem with Super Bowl. It was great the last five minutes um, when uh, when sort of someone had set a good time and you were wondering who might the last, uh, who, uh, who the last might be. But the trouble is you can't just have Super Bowl for three riders and the last, uh, uh, and it's that lot. You've got, to, you've got to have the rest of it first to set up those last five minutes. Absolutely. Um, I think technical changes um, might not be coming in for next year, but I spoke to Hervé Pontreal about this over the weekend. Obviously, he runs a, a Moto E team, um, and he said that basically for Moto 2, Moto 3, and Moto E at the moment, it's just keep development costs to an absolute minimum because it's a very, very delicate time economically for motorcycle manufacturers around the world. And okay, it looks as though GP. Development has been opened up again, obviously, um, after engine development was frozen from 2020 to 2021. Um, but for the for Moto3, Moto2 and Moto E, it's just let's get through these next few years and then let's see what happens. Now, there might be some kind of technical changes coming in for 2023, but it does seem in terms of, of yeah technical innovation, we're, we're just going to have to stay put. And I guess that that's, that's just a... Um, that is something that is born out of the current world circumstances. Yeah, I mean, for, for first of all, all professional sport is an entertainment product um, because if we don't have money coming in, then we can't pay for 
uh, then you can't pay for anything. You know, it stops being a professional sport if no one can afford to pay you. Um, and so there has to be, that has to be the priority. Um, doesn't mean it's not a pure contest. You can still have a pure contest. You just have to sort of set the rules to give everyone a better, uh, a better opportunity. I think things are also very difficult for Moto 2 and Moto 3, uh, and also to an extent Moto E, just because the, the decision by Dorna and this is the same for all professional sports to go with pay TV channels. Um, that, uh, generates more money for the sport. Uh, but it's bad for finding sponsors because it reduces, it, it turns it into much more of a niche, uh, a, a, a niche product. Uh, we saw it in, you know, when the uh, ITV broadcast the races live, uh, I think Silverstone and, uh, one other, I forget which race it was, but anyway, the, the, all of a sudden you've got a million people watching instead of, uh, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands sort of thing. And it's the same in Spain, I think. Uh, you, all of a sudden you've got a million, million and a half people watching on, is it Telecinco? I forget which channel that was actually broadcasting it free to air. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a, there's a huge difference when it's, a when it's openly broadcast but it's much more difficult to actually gain the uh, gain or make money off of the broadcasters but it is much better for sponsors uh, much better for the teams uh, it's a much harder sell for the teams to gain sponsors when you know the the the, the number of viewers is much much lower due to it being on pay tv absolutely absolutely um so i think model e 2021 I will give it a, a thumbs up here on the Paddock Pass podcast and uh, hopefully more of the same uh, next year, um, for sure. How about that, David? We've gone nearly 25 minutes and we've only spoken about Model E. I think that's the first as well. Shows you what a bit of controversy can do for a series. Yeah, but exactly. But it's the same with uh, it's the same with World Superbike. Like I'm really looking forward to hearing Stephen Gordo on the World Superbike show because the, the the World Superbike Championship has really lifted it. The arrival of Toprak has really lifted it and made it much more excitement, uh, much more exciting. So yeah, it's uh, that's what you need: close racing, excitement, and a little bit of um, a little bit of drama, a little bit of niggle. Yes, absolutely. Um, speaking of a little bit of niggle, let's uh, move swiftly on to uh, the Model Two category um, because um, we still have a title fight. Uh, it isn't quite done and dusted just yet. After Silverstone, we did think that uh, Remy Gardner had basically moved decisively in front of the championship fight. Uh, Ralph Fernandez crashed out in that occasion, but in the two races since then, and since Ralph Fernandez broke a bone in his right hand in a kind of clumsy training accident, he's only gone and won two races. This one at Misano was uh, another stunner, we have to say. Um, I mean, you're kind of like Pecco and Fabio in MotoGP with this one, Dave, aren't you? Because both guys rode such a fantastic race that it's difficult to know where to, to shine the spotlight, basically, straight away, because both guys were, were just riding on another level. Yeah, I mean, uh, Fernando's got a fantastic, got a, uh, a good start, some good early laps to take the lead early and then get away. Um, and he looked pretty much uncatchable. And Gardner was in, he looked to be in real trouble. I think he was down around sort of third, fourth, uh, uh, for most of the race. And then he fought his way forward, uh, and nearly won it. I mean, he came very, very close, but the digging in like that, I think that was a real championship winning performance because he can afford to give away five points at a time to Raul Fernandez. He can't afford to finish fourth, but he can afford to finish second. Um, so it was a really, really impressive, mature, and also very, very patient, a, a lot like uh, Quartararo. Like patience is such an important virtue in, in racing. And I think it's something which is the most difficult, um, sort of quality to have because it's quite difficult to be patient when you are riding a motorbike at nearly 300 kilometers an hour um, uh, with all the noise speed and danger around you so um, yeah that, that was impressive but I mean what can you say about Fernandez doing that with a broken with a broken wrist with you know a still healing hand yes so uh, it was this, it's his metacarpal isn't it we're going to talk about metacarpal again yes there you go um Doing that is just very, very impressive. I'm just so impressed with um, his 
Uh, again, his grit. It was. It really was like a, almost a battle of attrition between the two, and it came down to to quite a close little fight at the end. Yeah, um, a special shout out to Remy for saving that rear end slide through Carvoni in the final lap. That was one of the the moments of the day. Yeah, in case you were wondering whether he was trying or not. <laughs> yeah, and I would have loved to have seen it because he was absolutely convinced before that moment that uh, he was going to have a shot at turn fourteen because I think Fernandez was six tenths ahead. Um, and Remy basically in the penultimate lap, then the, the first half of the final lap, got that down to around two tenths. I mean, he was riding really well, inspired ride. Um, but that that uh, that moment, I think, obviously put paid to his hopes of challenging his teammate for victory. Um, but uh, a stunning performance as well. And a quick shot out as well also for Aaron Kinnett finishing third just behind those guys. Also to Sam Lowe's, I think, was just 1.5 seconds back. Um, another really good ride. Um, from Sam in the circumstances. Um, and Dave, I have to say, like, if we're looking at Raul and Remy, the performances that they do this year, I mean, kind of in terms of riders that we have performing at the top of the game this year, I mean, I'm kind of inclined to put Raul and Remy right up there with the very best. I mean, you, you've got maybe four guys in MotoGP that you say, okay, they're the top guys. Um, I'm, th- I'm thinking maybe Fabio... Peko, Mir, Marquez, obviously is still riding injured, but obviously it's Marquez. And then you're looking in Superpikes and Top Rack and Johnny, obviously, are up there. But you'd have to put, the way Raul and Remy are riding this year, I mean, they're just, they're so, so good and so consistently good that I, I think they're they're performing on that sort of similar level. Yeah, because they are pushing each other so hard. That's what is, um, I mean, it's, it's, interesting because they are teammates you know they're teammates in the same team um same bike uh and you know same level of technical support so there's no question mark about that it's it's a it's you know it's it's a man-to-man battle um and it's fascinating to see them because they're both pushing each other and you will see this sometimes where two riders will be so tightly matched that they'll push each other to sort of higher levels you saw that um, I, I spoke. One of the great things about Valentino Rossi's career is, you know, he would someone would come in and force him to up his game, and he would respond. Um, it's th- this is a little bit reminiscent of sort of you know Rossi versus Stoner in two thousand and eight. That they're both they're pushing each other and pushing each other and pushing each other, um, uh, uh, trying to find the limit sort of thing. So that's I mean, it's just been it's been very very impressive. It's been a really impressive performance by both of them. Uh, the sheer raw speed and talent of uh, Fernandez, and the just the maturity of Gardner. Really, that's honestly the the thing which has impressed me most is his patience and his maturity and his focus. You know, he's just come in here, um, come in this year, established himself, and really showing what it that he's got, what it takes to win a championship. The only question mark you've got is over, you know, what's the rest of the championship like? But you've got, you know, Marco Bezecchi, talented without question. Uh, Sam Lowe's world champion, uh, I think, in world super sport. Uh, talented without question um, have been the benchmark in Moto2 and, and is the men- benchmark in Moto2 um, perhaps you know, after that uh, well Canet has been has been very good as well um, Augusto Fernandez is only really now coming into his own sort of thing behind that there is a bit less quality so I suppose but perhaps we've seen that's the reason we're seeing this focus on the, the, the two IO riders uh, but yeah I, I, I agree with you Neil it's just been fantastic uh, it's a it's a real classic battle. Yeah, it really is, and I think um, it's on course to maybe become one of the great um, you know Model Two title fights if if Raúl is able to um, push Remy all the way to the final race at Valencia. I'm um, looking at the, the track still to come. I mean, it, it's tough to know, um, but I think we maybe talked a little bit about this on their the Paddock Note show on Sunday night. Austin, I think, is going to be a big, big, big challenge for Raul. Never been there, of course, on a on a Moto2 bike before. And it's one of those long tracks like Silverstone with so many corners, I think 20 different turns, that it's going to be incredibly difficult to make that up after learning it in, what, three free practice sessions. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much pain he's still in from his uh, from his hand, but um, uh, Austin is a. Hur- I mean, it's very physically demanding. Everyone says you know it's the most physically demanding track on the circuit uh, on, on the calendar uh, because of that first section. You know, out of turn two, turn two is a magnificent corner, and then you've got to go. It sort of flicks backwards and forwards all the way to the end of um, uh, to the hairpin at turn eleven, I think. Um, that is really, really physically demanding. Then you've got the back straight, which undulates and is just full of bumps. The, the track is really, really bumpy. It really needs to be resurfaced, uh, but it hasn't been resurfaced and it won't be resurfaced, but we've got to go to America. So we're stuck with it. Um, uh, I think that's going to be, if uh, if Raul is still having problems with his hand, then I think it's going to be really quite tough for him. It's going to be interesting to see how he copes with that. Um, uh, and perhaps it's a chance for Remy to make a bit of a difference. But again, it's also a track where it's easy to make a mistake and n- neither of them can afford to make a mistake. You know, Remy's lead is not sufficient to really be comfortable um he can't sort of take it easy he has to push right to the end so yeah it, 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 there's he he has to keep his focus absolutely uh, moving on to model three um it was an interesting race it was a little um a little cam by model three standards we haven't quite had the uh the manic mania that uh, was apparent in many races in the first half of the season actually um i don't want to, to jinx this but it does seem as though moto 3 has sorted itself out slightly and um, we've seen a, a run of races where the kind of the fastest guys are, are winning the race you're not seeing someone who's qualified 18th um up there fighting at the front without really having any expectation to do so uh, but i feel a, a part of that is because of the guys that we're seeing at the front because Romano Fanati um, basically set the pace from the start of this race and pulled the field apart. And then Dennis Foggia, after Fanati crashed out, was just um, was just so strong uh, in those final laps and that bike so fast that uh, there were no mistakes for anyone else behind to capitalize on. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other thing is we've had a few tracks where you haven't really had the opportunity for, to, to slipstream for a long way. You know, so the weaker riders haven't been able to get into the toe of the stronger riders and just allow themselves to be pulled along to make up the time, uh, literally just in sort of free air. Um, but, you know, once, I mean, Fanati rode an absolutely phenomenal race. Um, until he made one very small mistake, um, which proved to be quite costly. Uh, but that pace is what's pulling the field apart. You know, just the, the, the weaker riders can't keep up with that real pace. And so you're really seeing the stronger riders come to the fore. Uh, yeah, Fanati rode superbly until he made a mistake. And yeah, Foggia rode a just absolutely fantastic race to, to, to take away the win, take away the win in the end. Yeah, quite a turnaround for Foggia as well, basically at war with that team, uh, the Leopard team back in Austria, um, to the point that the team actually released a statement to try and clarify the situation, saying, Oi, everything that the rider's saying, it's rubbish, mate. <laughs> and whenever something like that happens, you think, my God, it must be really bad in there. But um, but he's signed to stay for another year, which I find uh, massively surprising. I think it speaks of the, the lack of opportunities in Model 2. Um, when Foggia realized that there wasn't really much going in the intermediate class, he thought, well, if I'm going to stay in Model 3, I'm probably in one of the best teams at the moment with the best bike. Um, so why move? And it's, it's working out for him. Um, obviously, I think now Dave Foggia is the man that the championship leader will be looking at with a little uh, slight nervous glance. Pedro Acosta didn't have the best day again. Um, I think... He now he still has a pretty decent lead in the championship, forty-two points. But Foggia is now level with Sergio Garcia in second. Um, Acosta, another tough day. We've now had four difficult races for Acosta on the bounce because the last lap in the Austrian Grand Prix didn't go his way. Finished fourth. He had an off day in Silverstone. He crashed out in Aragon, and here seventh place. I mean, it wasn't great. Whenever your closest contender wins. No, no, exactly. Well, he wasn't his his closest contender until today. You know, like um, uh, at the start of the weekend, he was probably looking more at what Sergio Garcia was doing. And I think that was probably also what he was doing during the race. But uh, Acosta really does seem to have 
come into a slump. And I, I really, I mean, the obviously you're much closer than me, so you've got a much better idea. So you'll have to tell me if I'm wrong. But um, you really get the idea that the there is that the pressure is starting to get to him. That uh, I mean, he's a rookie. He's still only seventeen, I think. Um, he's just turned seventeen, so yeah, the, you, the the pressure, and especially when you once you come into the class and everyone is telling you, you know, you are uh, you're like a god. It's a, um, uh, when you're being praised so highly, and then all of a sudden it gets harder and harder and harder because the real work of winning a championship. Also, I mean, we as you said, the the way that the race has been playing out definitely has changed as well. Um, it's the really experienced fast riders are going to the front, pulling away, upping the tempo. Uh, there's no, it leaves less room to make up for small mistakes. So perhaps that is also something which is a factor here. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, Foggia and Finati have upped their game considerably um, in the second half of this year. And that is obviously changing the nature of the races. Um, but yeah, it's, it, Costa doesn't look like that sort of same swashbuckling figure that we saw just look like an absolute cert um, to make things happen in his way in the uh, the final laps of the race. We haven't really seen that for the last couple of weekends. I think on this occasion, there might have been um, some extenuating circumstances. Um, like for example, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, Dave, but uh, Jaime Algasari, who's like the Catalan promoter, guy that promotes the Super Prestigio and has done many events in the past. He was a former racer himself. I think he's good friends with Acosta and I saw he posted a photo on Twitter uh, today um, or a few days ago, in fact. Uh, basically, it was a photo that Acosta must have sent him of his race boot on Sunday. And uh, Acosta was complaining of a lack of confidence in the braking zones. But uh, Jaime posted that um, basically it was a bit of a defective tyre, um, which wasn't allowing him to brake as he wanted. And basically, the whole front of Acosta's book, the sole, uh, basically, of the front part of his right boot has just been completely worn away because he is having to slow himself down with his right foot on the track. So... Um, I still think in the circumstances, seventh place wasn't bad considering there was a big group of riders right behind him. At one point, it looked like he might be down 10th or 11th. So again, not a disaster, but just compared to what we saw at the start of the year, it's just a little bit below that level. Yeah, it's it's sort of up and down, if you like, because it is, as you say, it's like, um, uh, I suppose, to, perhaps a good comparison would be with Fabio Quartararo at Aragon, where he finished eighth. Um, you know, he they messed it up. They got his tire pressure wrong. Uh, he struggled, but he fought his way back and got, uh, finished eighth and, and rescued a lot of points. It was very much the same sort of idea with Acosta, where uh, things could have gone much worse. He does seem to be able to rescue a bad situation. The problem is he gets into a bad uh, situation. Um, but Neil, I mean, like the championship. Pedro Acosta is obviously still in the lead, 24, 42 points. Um, can, is Foggia now the main challenger? And do you think that uh, either Foggia or Garcia could actually catch him? 100% Foggia is the main challenger. Um, and yeah, I think it is possible that he could catch him because I could, I could see Foggia basically finishing on the podium every race from now until the end of the season. Um, we go back to Mizano, um, obviously after Cota. Cota's going to be tough because Acosta's never raced there. Foggia has. Um, and also Portimao is a real good track for Foggia. It's a good track for Acosta as well, to be fair. Um, but yeah, I could see this definitely going to the last race. Um, and just the experience uh, on Foggia's side. Yeah, I think he's he still has to be counted as a danger. The only thing that could run against him is that he's, he's crap in the wet he's he's really not strong in wet conditions Acosta is so if we have some pretty crap conditions when we get to Valencia Portimao or Mizano I mean then uh, you know Acosta's in line to, to gain some decent points um, but uh, yeah I don't think this is quite over like um, I might have said a few rounds ago what about Garcia? I mean, where do you see Garcia, uh, Sergio Garcia? Because Garcia, to me, he seems to be uh, a little bit more consistent than uh, Acosta. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, uh, apart from all the crashing out, which he keeps doing, which is um, no, not terrific. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he looked like he had 
ever since I started after his, uh, his brilliant last gasp victory in Austria. But since then, not been in the best form. Um, you know, two non-scores in Silverstone and Aragon. Um, yeah, I, I think it might be just a year too early for, for Garcia's championship win. Um, he's obviously signed to stay with that team for the next year uh, in Moto3. Um, which I found quite surprising. Um, so yeah, he's going to be looking at at twenty twenty two as as his Moto three championship here. But you know, he's still in still in the hunt. But I think it's maybe just too big an ask for him at this time. Um, but yeah, another thing, Dave, just to talk about to round off the show. Um, we obviously had some good news that uh, we're going to have uh, three new teams in Moto three, the Moto three World Championship next year. Uh, one of them being um, Michael Laverty's Vision Track Honda racing team, which sounds like a pretty interesting project. Um, Tell us more. Um, yeah, I mean, Michael Laverty has been working on this project for uh, a while. I think the plan was for it to happen next year, but uh, or sorry, twenty twenty three, not twenty twenty two. As an old man, I get my uh, I get my years. It all it's all one great big blur at the moment. Um, the idea is to bring British talent through, uh, and. It, to an extent, the way that the American racing team is also, you know, focusing much more on uh, American ta- American talent. They've had Joe Roberts. They've got um, uh, Cameron Bobier. Uh, they will have um, what's his name? Uh, Kelly, Sean Dillon Kelly. That's right. Uh, uh, the, the American racing team will have Sean Dillon Kelly in um, uh, in Moto Two, so it's going to be a proper American team. Uh, the the Moto Three, the Vision Track Honda team with Michael Laverty is going to have two young British riders coming through from the um, uh, from the British Talent Cup. Two young riders, Josh Watley, Scott Ogden. Uh, they were they were racing in, Brit- in the British Talent Cup. I think they were also done some um, uh, in one of the junior classes in BSB. I'm a, my apologies, I don't follow BSB at all. Uh, talk They're of, in the you, Junior World Champion. Oh, oh yeah, ah right. Well, well, uh, Neil, you tell me about you tell me about these riders because I haven't been following it closely enough. Okay, yeah, well, Josh uh, Watley and Scott Ogden are both competing in the FIM Junior World Championship this year, the Moto3 World Junior World Championship, and Scott Ogden has been competing in the Red Bull Rookies Cup as well. Um, he won a race in the Junior World Championship, I think, um, a few weekends ago, and is a yeah top 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 prospect. Um, Josh Watley, I think, has kind of less experience in the junior uh, categories, um, so it's going to be a big, big jump for him. But um, but two exciting names, you know, two of the the more exciting British names coming through. Um, so yeah, I think that's that, that's great news. Yeah, and it's it, I mean the, the only way. Um, I did, Matt actually had a very interesting uh, blog about it last week. About I think it was last week, um, it might have been the week before, about you know talent and, and where talent comes from. And he spoke to John uh, John Hopkins about it, and he said, you know, these bikes are so stiff. Uh, people who come up through production racing don't understand how stiff a race bike is. And we need uh, riders on these, on these sort of stiff frames uh, riding around. And I think uh, a project like the Vision Track Honda uh, team with Michael Lavish, and especially, you know, like MLAB is such a, an intelligent, uh, thoughtful, just really, really smart man. Um, he's going to be really good. Uh, he's also very calm. Uh, he's very good. He's very clear. He's a great communicator. I think he's going to be really, really good at managing people. Uh, so th- for him to manage young riders, um, to give them an opportunity, a room to grow, room to ride, um, and room to get experience on uh, Grand Prix tracks, on Grand Prix bikes, Grand Prix weekends, how to put all of that whole package together, that is the best opportunity for them to actually develop as Grand Prix riders and then move on to something bigger. Good news all around for British racing fans with um, Michael Laverty's team going to be a part of the Moto3 World Championship from 2022 onwards. And it does seem as though they'll be uh, taking some of the Petronas Sprinter Racing Team boys because obviously that team is uh, dissolving at the end of this year and um, it's quite uh, British heavy with uh, the number of technicians and, and mechanics um, and so forth. Um, so, yeah, the structure is kind of already there in place in some respects. Yeah, and also, you know, it's a, it's 
talented staff. These are all uh, uh, mechanics crew chiefs, people who are experienced and know what they're doing, uh, are very good at uh, bringing along riders and, and getting the best out of their riders. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really promising project. I'm really looking forward to, to, to seeing what comes out of it. Okay. I am also looking forward to that as well, David. Um, I'm also looking forward to uh, a weekend off, if I'm completely honest, uh, because it's been a, a bit of a punishing run of late. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll be reconvening sometime next week to maybe talk Coda. Um, but um, I guess until then, I'm going to have to bid you farewell for a few days. Uh, yes, indeed. And when are you flying to? Well, well, first of all, when are you flying to America? And also, have you booked your flights yet and booked your accommodation? Dave, I, I don't know why this is a, a common question on the podcast. I've booked my flight about a month ago. I, you're a changed person. We, uh, have you been kidnapped? Have you been kidnapped and replaced by aliens, Neil? Because normally it's um, sort of... Uh, I, I, I have known you but we, in our chats to, uh, to say, or for someone to ask you, have you booked your flight on the Monday? And you to say, no, not yet. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm officially impressed. A man that would pay or that has paid extortionate prices to stay in a crap hotel in Milton Keynes uh, might have got the, the the proverbial kick up the backside that he needed uh, to go and book the rest of accommodation. So that's my excuse. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it's always it's the uh, uh, the university of life. Am I right? Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, sir. Well, and uh, Dave, we're going to bring this week's show to an end. Thank you very much, dear listener, for uh, for listening to this uh, edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. If you want to become a Paddock Pass podcast uh, Patreon subscriber, uh, you can do that on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. You have two tiers. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month, and that will give you access to some additional content every week that we post. Um, for example, Dave has been quite uh, active um, posting little shows about um, the Mizano test, the MotoGP test on, on both days, which was a uh, fantastic, interesting listening. And also there is the $10 uh, a month tier. Um, and that basically will ha give you access to our Paddock's Notes show, which we do every week, every, sorry, every night during the GP weekend. So that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe even a Thursday if something really juicy or interesting happens then as well. Um, so that's a whole lot of additional content uh, for, let's face it, a relatively little amount. What's that? Uh, basically the price of a pint a week for one of our podcast members, Dave. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, I mean uh, the the price of a pint, uh, uh, the price of a nice drink in a nice uh, in a nice bar uh, a week. Exactly. Yes. So on that note, we're going to uh, head off, and I'm going to buy someone that isn't Dave a nice pint and a nice drink in a nice bar. Uh, the night that lies before us. Um, so thank you very much again, dear listener, and we'll come back to you with more shows next week. Top work, Mr. Morrison. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Uh, I will get me some of that sweet, sweet... Um, record on this computer. <laughs>